Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, this morning we're continuing uh, reading from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to explain my title here, but the title is uh, Deliver Him Over to Satan, which is Paul's recommendation here in chapter 5. This past week, uh, Christopher Watts was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences in prison uh, for the murder of this past August of his pregnant wife and two young daughters. And he explained the reason that he did it was that he wanted to start a new life with his girlfriend. And after strangling his wife and smothering his children, he buried his wife, Shannon, in a shallow grave and he put his daughters, uh, Bella and Celeste, in containers of crude oil. Apparently he was an oil field worker. The Washington Post reports that neither the prospect prosecutors nor the surviving relatives of the Watts expect to ever understand how this seemingly normal person could annihilate his entire family. Uh, Watts' parents stood up at the trial, Cynthia and Ronnie, and they could not believe that their son had done such a thing, but they couldn't deny that he had done it because he himself confessed, and in light of his confession, They asked only that one day Watts would explain himself. It's not unlike expecting somebody like Adolf Eichmann, the mastermind behind the Holocaust, to explain the Holocaust. In fact, at his trial in Israel, uh, Eichmann offered several explanations for his own actions. He says that he was simply obeying orders or that he was obligated as a bureaucrat to follow the law. But what becomes clear is that Eichmann does not contain the evil. He's not the explanation, but is contained within it. Sort of like uh, if you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings or read uh, Tolkien's novels, the Golem character, you know, is reduced. He's kind of this little creature that an insipid skulking creature devoid of personhood or humanity. Um, Gollum cannot explain himself. His entire self is consumed. Literally his humanity has been consumed by his desire, in this case in the story for the ring. Uh, Gollum would bring down the world and Watts destroyed his family. Eichmann would have destroyed an entire race of people in service to a counterfeit power, uh, a counterfeit love, a counterfeit understanding of the law, which they served but could not presume to comprehend. Paul provides an explanation, I think, for evil arising in conjunction with very ordinary circumstances of law, marriage, and family. In Corinth, a man has initiated an incestuous relationship. And apparently the entire church is aware of this and seems to approve of it. 
And Paul tells them to deliver the man over, the, over to Satan, that his flesh might be destroyed and his spirit saved. A kind of an unusual turn of phrase, an un unfamiliar concept. I want to explain it, but let's look, let's read from uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 um, down to verse 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleans, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And maybe the key verse here is this last verse. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. You are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Notice that throughout this Paul is speaking to the Corinthians as if they are Israel. In verse 1, he says, you're doing things that are not even spoken of among the Gentiles, meaning he's counting the Corinthians not among the Gentiles, but among Israel. And then he's using the Passover, the night you know, in which Israel survived, was the Passover, and the houses were marked with the blood of the Lamb. He's picturing the entire church of Corinth as Israel. Outside of the house was death, the destroyer, who had somehow been unleashed in Egypt by God himself. And inside the house, inside Israel, and now inside the church, there is life. And the way that this will be pictured in the book of Revelation is that Satan is actually bound as the inside of the house becomes larger and larger and is expanded and the, the territory of Satan is constrained. So inside the kingdom and the church, the destroyer cannot destroy, but outside he can. And so throughout chapter 5, Paul is applying scripture, his scripture, or the, the, the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament and specifically the story of Exodus and the depiction in Deuteronomy of what is to be done with someone who's rebellious. That's where we get the phrase, cast him out, turn him over to Satan. 
But even in verse 10, he lists the things that they're doing. Here are things that you should cast out, or if people are marked by these sins, they should be cast out. And he explains now in verse 10, he said, now I'm not talking about people in the world. He said, we can't get out of the world. I'm talking about people in the church. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, any brother in Christ, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And Paul is using Deuteronomy here, and he's using Exodus. Clearly, he's not rejected the law. He's not rejected the Old Testament in the manner that Luther and Calvin depicted. He's appealing to the law. This is precisely out of the law, this list of sins. And just as the law was a marker of who was part of Israel, Paul is telling them not to associate with so-called brothers, his phrase, who cheats in business, who is greedy, who is sexually immoral. He makes clear he is not, you know, talking about pagans, but we have, you know, we have to associate with pagans. But brothers and sisters in Christ who would brag about the art of the deal. Who would brag about being like Jacob, you know, from our Sunday school lesson. Brothers and sisters who claim Christ but who presume to sin in regard to sex, religion, money, alcohol, material gain. He's just following Deuteronomy here. But of course, Paul is deploying the law in a new way as evidenced in his appeal to Passover, the event behind the purpose of the law, death passing over, this purpose is now fulfilled in Christ. But this fulfillment does not mean that the law does not apply but it might be better said that the law is not binding or does not put us in a bind as it did in sin. The law was a burden due to sin. We talked about this last time. It's a burden in two ways. One can put confidence in the law in the sense of the legalist, you know, that Paul was, a Pharisee. He says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, and notice he equates legalism, confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put it, I have far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on and on. You know, I was the best of the Jews. But as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That is, he's saying, as I excelled in Judaism, I became worse and worse. I became more and more evil. And the Corinthians seem to be leaning in two extremes. And I'm not sure these are two separate things. Extreme judgmentalism and extreme transgression, right? And this is the sin principle at work 
Though through one who would enact the law, you know, they're judging Paul. They're extremely critical of him. They're extremely critical of each other. They would be the judge. They would enact the law. They would presume to disfellowship the brother, you know, Paul, but they would not presume to disfellowship the brother living with his stepmother. We presume. We presume it's not his mother because that would be even worse, right? They don't, it doesn't say that. In some way, they're creating their own law, which, of course, brings us back to Eden, the original sin. The first couple presumed God was holding out on them. You know, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tempter says, oh, you'll be like God's. Here's the real stuff. Here's real being. Here's real life. And so they enacted the law. The law was you'll die. And they, you know, began to die by transgressing it. And they imagined, maybe they imagined even after the fact that they had taken hold of life through the law by transgressing it. The law seems to be a means, they thought, in Satan's or the tempter's picture of hiding the really good stuff. Being, being like God, life. They would stand in the place of God, knowing good and evil, having them life in themselves, being the arbiter of their own law. Now what I'm going to say is this is not just their problem. I think that's what always happens. I think that's what's happening in, in Corinth. In Paul's illustration, he uses a similar example from Romans. The woman who would consort with a man who is not her husband it's the same problem. She would love outside or against the law. In fact, her love is a symptom of the prohibition, and the prohibition has its force only in the exception. That is, because it's forbidden, because her husband is alive, it creates the situation. Transgression and desire go together. So this is sort of love we can say at a minimum is not agape love but rather a form of love. You know we should put that in scare quotes. A form of enjoyment in which the obstacle constitutes the lost love. The woman's living husband is a necessary part of this sort of consorting. Maybe just as this man's father is a necessary part of the incestuous relationship. He is the obstacle that makes the relationship with the other desirable. This is sin. This is the definition of sin. Sin is the very intimate resistant core on account of which we experience our relationship to the law as one of subjection. It is that on account of which the law is appears as this foreign crushing power, you know, in which we cannot or would not be constrained. And so one can try to manipulate the law as a harsh critic or judge, they're doing that. But the other way to manipulate the law is by transgression. 
And that's what's occurring here in the case of the man living with his stepmother. It's the same orientation imagining that the law marks an essence life being and one might try to get to this, you know, through the top side of the law, enforcing the law as a legalist, as a judge, or by the underside of the law, by getting what the law marks as of true value in forbidding it. I think it's the, it, that's sin. That's the sin orientation. The man in Corinthians would displace his father by marrying his father's wife. This is, you know, Freud called this the Oedipus complex. It is the origin of the perversion of the law. And so this incestuous relation, as Paul notes, it's even forbidden. He said, not even the Gentiles do this. We know from Gentile law, the Roman jurist Gaius in the second century maintained, it is illegal to marry a father's or mother's sister nor can I marry her, her who was at one time my mother-in-law or stepmother. Cicero, perhaps contemporary with Paul, expressed disgust when a mother-in-law marries her son-in-law. Not even the Gentiles do this, Paul says, and maybe it's so disgusting precisely because this sort of incestuous relationship describes the kind of ultimate taboo, a kind of intended patricide. You know, Freud thought it was the case that every male child wanted to kill his father and marry his mother. But this sort of understanding pictures the father figure as the embodiment of the law. The father, the law forbids what is clearly most desirable. You know, you, every child wants to be like his father, right? Every child wants to be his father. What is sought, the serpent, you know, says in Genesis, is that you will be like God. You'll be like your father in heaven. In both Genesis and Romans, we see that the object of sin is the I, the ego. I is just the Greek word, you know, Greek word there is ego. And after the fall, what does Adam say? He uses that word for the first time it appears in the Bible. It appears four times. I ran. Uh, I was afraid. I heard you in the garden. I was naked. And so the explanation, I believe, why did Watts kill his family? What is the explanation for golems? You know, he goes around, oh, my precious. Or the woman who can only love her consort and not her husband. I believe it's nothing other than the ego, the I. The ego is posited as an ultimate reality, but it is ultimately, of course, unreal. Paul says, I have died. It is no longer I that live. He's using that word. We can do away with this orientation. Isn't this every adolescence, you know, he carries the secret within him that in his own soul is the most precious element. 
This is captured, I don't know if you all read the, cap, the Catcher in the Rye, or the novels of Herman Hesse. Herman Hesse says, there is no reality except the one contained within us. That is why so many people live such an unreal life. They take the images outside of them for reality and never allow the world within to assert itself. And so Hesse's novels are all about this reality of living in the inward self. My ego, myself, is the ultimate reality. I don't know about you people. You don't really matter. Can't you see that I'm such a sensitive individual? Don't you understand that the most precious thing in the world resides in me? Maybe in a secret place. I'm the catcher in the rye. You know, I think every 13-year-old, 16-year-old boy is the catcher in the rye. I am the beautiful soul to gentle. You know, I'm too gentle, too good for this world. No ordinary web of social relations will ever be able to get at this thing deep within me. In fact, these ordinary relations are an obstacle to who I really am. I hope you understand I'm speaking in the voice here of a lie. This ego or thing, this thing that is most precious, this I is that which arises over and against the law in sin. In Genesis, you know, the I subsequent to the fall. In Romans, the I is constituted as a conflict, a struggle within the self. It's not simply that the self is split, but the self is this split. This I is split, is in struggle by definition. The one, you know, the more you struggle, the more you, you know, uh, suffer within yourself, the more intense we might say the dying, the greater the masochistic satisfaction. Watts would sacrifice his wife, his children, his unborn child. But every worshiper of Moloch, every worshiper of Baal, is a worshiper at the idol of desire. Everyone driven, Paul says, by greed or lust, every swindler or drunkard worships the idol of desire and you should have no part with these people. Desire for the self is a desire which would bring down the world so as to gain the lost object. And where this desire is confused with life and love, there will be no relinquishing of the desire short of death itself. And Paul calls this orientation the law of sin and death. This law works through a lie. Paul pictures desire or covetousness as the root of sin. The sinful desire that arises with the law is a means of establishing the self, the ego, the I. In some way to maneuver the law or even to maneuver God so as to obtain what he has. And this may explain Paul's recommendation Deliver the man over to Satan. 
Deliver him over to his desire. Deliver him over to the reality that he desires so that he might be delivered from the deception that he's living under. Paul has already described the people in this world as perishing in uh, the 118, the world, uh, rather the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What occurs on the cross is a relinquishing of that which is most precious, right? That for which we might bring down the world, the I, the ego. I have died, Paul says. For the, the flesh for Paul is the orientation, constitute, the, the, let me say that again, let me emphasize it. The flesh is the orientation, right? He's going to undo this orientation. Deliver him over, Paul says, that his flesh, this orientation, might be destroyed and he might be saved. So the flesh, sin, is an orientation. It's a, disease, a deceived orientation to the law. One associates the law, authority, with the power of life. And one might be a law keeper, law transgressor, but this is still to be deceived in regard to how the authority of God and law will work together. And so delivering this man over to Satan is meant to destroy this orientation in both the man and I believe in the church itself. Because as long as they're harboring this man, they are sickened by the same problem. And so one might read Paul's notion of saving the spirit by sacrificing the flesh as both applying corporately to the church and to the individual man. Corporately, they need to rid themselves of the fleshly principle represented by this man. But by the same token, they will rescue the man in the same way they rescue themselves exposing him to the full consequence of his action. Turning him out of the community is meant to save both him and the community. And let me make a note here. The hand him over, we've used this phrase, we examined it in some detail. Judas hands Jesus over. Pilate, Rome, hand Jesus over. The sin of Judas is depicted in the foot washing, remember? It was the sin of all the apostles that they all needed to be cleansed of Judas, but also the sin of Judas. The Passover meal was the point where Judas was divided from the apostles. The betrayer went out into the night from the Passover meal. And I believe the Passover metaphor is obviously at work here by excluding the incestuous man from the, from the community, the church places him outside the sphere of God's redemptive protection. He is no longer inside the house whose doorposts are covered by the blood of Jesus. He is hung out to dry in the realm of Satan. As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world. He's exposed to the destructive powers of the world. 
Now, what we see from 2 Corinthians is the man repents. It, you know, it, it works, but even if it hadn't worked, getting rid of the man certainly worked for the church, and it worked for him both, worked for both of them. Rather than boasting, Paul says, as they do, they should recognize where they really stand in the story of God's redemption. They are being liberated from captivity through death, the death of Christ, and like Israel on the night of Passover, clean out the leaven, he says, and gather together for the feast that celebrates deliverance. That's the communion. That's what we're celebrating. Now, Paul could, I think, be foreshadowing in this chapter what he does in chapter 11 when he specifically talks about the Lord's Supper in which he also will deal with judgment in the community by recognizing the Passover lamb. Recognize the body of Christ. Recognize who you are. That's the point of communion. And so the way in which sin takes hold through the law is to imagine that through transgression or law keeping, one can have life by manipulating the law. This is sin. Paul's depiction of this in Romans. Shall we sin that grace may abound? That's the problems not only of the Romans, but of the Corinthians. But maybe that's the human problem. Shall we do evil that good might increase? God forbid. That is sin. They imagine that they have freedom, but they are using their freedom to return to, sell, uh, to slavery. Paul says a very similar thing to the Galatians. He says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's the choice, right? Use your freedom for the flesh. That's your one choice. You can do that. Or you can love. But you cannot do those two things. You cannot sin that grace may abound. You cannot do evil that good increase. You cannot be, Paul uses one word here, you arrogant Corinthians. You cannot be arrogant and love. You cannot serve through love one another and be arrogant. Death under the law, mutilation in Galatians, turned over to Satan in Corinthians, exposed to the full consequence of sin in the immediate situation. This is meant to expose the end point of misused freedom. It is mutilating, death-dealing, it will undo you. Peter says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood. In both of these passages, this freedom is utilized and enacted through service. And this is the way Paul in chapter 4, we just did this. The freedom 
of Christ is a freedom to take on the responsibility of loving service for others. Law, due to, stand, due to sin, stands over and against love in both instances. And he can sum this up. This judgmental attitude or this libertine misuse of freedom in a singular term, the singular term arrogance. You have become, in verse 2, arrogant and have not mourned and stood so that the one who has done this deed should be removed from your midst. It's a very simple formula, isn't it? You cannot be arrogant and love. You cannot be a loving servant who would misuse others to satisfy your greed, to satisfy your lust, to satisfy your desire. You cannot literally or metaphorically annihilate others to gain true love. So we have to face the deception of sin corporately and individually we must recognize that due to sin, we would imagine that we can hurt other people and this will help us achieve what we want. But this is sin and death. We must give up on the human project, turn it over to Satan, and take up loving service. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.